Welcome back to Red Star Radio. Today we're joined by a special guest. It's Steve Sweeney. Steve is a former reporter for the Morning Star, where he reported extensively from the Middle East, and he's now based in Moscow, where he's doing some work for Russia today. And we're going to be talking to Steve about his reporting from the Middle East, especially with regard to the conflict in Syria, and taking in some other issues with which he has a lot of experience as well. Let's start off, Steve, by just looking at the most recent news that's obviously been all over the news in the West, and I imagine has been in Russia as well, which is the question of the death of the former General Secretary of the USSR, and indeed the last General Secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR, a country he helped dissolve, Mikhail Gorbachev. So can you talk a little bit about how the uh, reaction to his death has gone over in Moscow, and also how, uh, in your experience, reporting from these conflict zones around the world where imperialism has been on a rampage since the fall of the USSR, how do you reflect upon his death and legacy? Well, um, first of all, just to say that um, not long after arriving in Moscow, I visited a a market very close to um, where I'm staying and I got chatting to a photographer there and he was um you know he was there selling um you know pictures of lamp various landmarks um across moscow so we got talking and uh he he said very clearly um that uh you know how moscow has changed over o- over the years and he described um his own um his own childhood or his own um schooling and he said that um something like 25 percent of the men that he went to school with are now dead. I mean, that, that's a pretty astonishing, astonishing um, figure. And um, he uh, he said that a lot of these, this was because of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he said that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, many of his um, former school friends succumbed to either drugs, um, they had, uh, or alcoholism and and violence. And that was, they were the three things that killed um many of his many of his peers now the day that uh, gorbachev died earlier this week i finished he died just after i'd finished um finished a a shift and i went for a a drink afterwards after work with a with a friend and we were in a bar and uh, we heard the news that gorbachev had died and i can tell you that there were um no regrets there was no um you know there were no tears there was no sadness in fact if anything the opposite because um gorbachev as um you know you, i found out um on the streets of moscow is despised um he's despised by uh, many russians that blame him for uh, that one the destruction of the of the soviet union but also the aftermath of that which saw um you know people um their 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 living conditions absolutely ameliorated the cost of you know the cost of living um rose and people you know that you have to remember under the soviet union there was full employment and as my photographer friend that i spoke to told me all of a sudden one day the government you know looked after you they gave you a job and and, and housing and education and health and all of the things that um, you know that 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 people had under the, and took for granted in a way under the Soviet Union were gone, and you were left to fend for yourself. And you know the capitalist um, you know rampage of um, you know of, of the of the Soviet Union um, uh, took place. And of course, at that at that time, at that moment in time, when when the Soviet Union existed, of course you had a counterbalance to 
um, uh, the the what we now have is the global hegemony, the the global dominance of um, of the United States. So they weren't able to act quite um, um, as uh, rapaciously as they as they do now. And I think you know we've 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 seen the impact. Um, and um, you know, many people are saying that actually, what's happening in Ukraine is the is the legacy of 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 Mikhail um, Gorbachev. So um, I think that, that, that um, you know you can see his um, you know he, he was famous, very famous in in Russia, and I think perhaps other people may know this for appearing in a, a Pizza Hut advertisement. And you know that's being played over now. People are saying, look, this is the legacy. This is what we have you know the, the soviet union was destroyed um and our living conditions were completely um ameliorated but we've got pizza hut we've got burger king you know, <laughs> and, and and you know this is this is the legacy that he that, that he left behind but also now with the conflict in in ukraine um you know this kind of, you know, this wouldn't necessarily have happened had the soviet union not broken up and um you know and gorbachev not um, you know, being uh, gone around cap in hand to the world imperialist powers, um, you know, and 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 open open the floodgates to um, what happened what happened in Russia. Now Putin um, has, uh, I mean, this is why his approval ratings are something like eighty five percent. This is why he's incredibly popular because uh, you know before he came to power, the system and and the country was was in a dire state it was it was uh, you know it was in a terrible mess um and putin's now come along and he's given the country he's brought stability uh stability to the to, to the country so i think we can say that you know people are reflecting on the legacy putin i th- you know is now um I, I i read a report yesterday that said that he's too busy to attend Gorbachev's state funeral to um uh, sorry, Gorbachev's funeral tomorrow is not a state funeral, but Gorbachev's funeral, which is taking place in, in Moscow tomorrow. He he's visited, he's paid his respects as a um you know as, as Russian leader, and he did that in a very respectful way, but he's he's not attending the funeral. And you know, people can draw their own conclusions um from that. And I, there's not been any backlash from the Russian public, I can tell you, not saying that this is outrageous, he should be going, he should be paying his respect or, or, you know, to, to Gorbachev. So, um, you know, there's been no tears shed for, um, you know, for, for, for the loss of Gorbachev. And I don't think it's any mistake that, you know, he's being lamented by, um, you know, by the West. This is the same West, by the way, that just um, a week before Gorbachev died, the, you know, the city of Moscow was, and is still reeling in a way from the, um the death of um, the 29-year-old journalist Daria Dugina, who was um, killed in a cowardly um, attack, a terrorist attack. Um, she was her, the car that she was travelling in was, was blown up, um, and it's believed that it was blown up by a um, Ukrainian national. It was a Ukrainian, um, a, a Ukrainian plot. Now she is somebody who had uh, was was deeply loved she was incredibly popular she had reported from um mariupol from azovstal from um from from donbass and you know, this is a cowardly attempt to silence any of those um the, the, those voices and of course in the west who just days before um daria was killed the same west were were um you know lamenting the attack on um, Salman Rushdie, the the, the author who, uh, you know, who was um, stabbed in um, in the United States, and the the, the 
liberals were and, and the Western media were using this as a stick to beat Iran with, calling for tougher a- action and uh, increased sanctions. But at the same time, just days later, they were seemingly gloating over the death of, of, of Daria Dugina. Um, implying that she deserved to die. And then, of course, they made this link with um, with her father, Alexander Dugin, who they were calling Putin's brain and a fascist. I mean, all of this is, of course, nonsense. It's false, the, the, these um, uh, false things. So, you know, this is how they treat, um, you know, the, the deaths of, of, of people very, very differently. And, of course, they completely manipulate it for their own um, own political political means. But... When it comes to Gorbachev, I can tell you now that there's no tears being shed on the streets of Moscow. There are plenty of tears being shed in the office of the new statesman, though, Steve, which is uh, obviously more important. Um, and um, Guardian writers are rending their clothing in the Guardian offices. Um, sure they are. Lamenting how it all, where, where did it all go wrong? Um, but of course, um, the other uh, factor in in all of this is that, as you as you said in your, in your previous answer, Steve, that the um, the disappearance of the Soviet Union has enabled uh, the U.S. to go on an almost unprecedented thirty-year um, rampage um, across many different areas of the world. But specifically, their their plan in the nineties and the two thousands um, developed around reshaping the Middle East in their interests, as uh, Project for the New American Century expressed. And one of the um, countries on that target list um, all those years ago was, of course, Syria. Um, and you've uh, covered what's been going on there quite quite extensively. So I wanted to ask you, um, the uh, U.S. interference against um, Syria, um, how far back does it go? Does it, is, it's, does it go just back to the beginning of the war, or are we talking like a lot further into the past? Well, I mean, of, of course, we can look at the U.S. interference a lot uh, a lot further in in, you know, in uh, into the past, and not just the United States, Britain as well. I mean, it's you know they've been um, loyal foot soldiers to U.S. foreign policy for uh, many many years, and um, you know we can uh, you know and and of course they have a you know different strategies and different tactics at different um, at different times, whether that's um, you know, supporting you know supporting dictators that will um, promote Western um, Western interests um, in the region, as, as we've seen, or attempted coups against um, leaders, um, like we saw in um, you know in a, in Iran when there was an attempt to um, you know, nationalize um, the the oil industry there, um, and of course, yeah, ousting ousting leaders. But I think we can say that. In Syria, things certainly intensified um, really sort of post, um, you know, 2011, I, I, I guess, around, you know, around there with, and, and, and I mean, I think that, that words are important, how we describe this is important, because in the Western press, the liberal press, and even amongst those that, you know, that deem themselves or class themselves as progressives or leftists, they talk about a Syrian civil war. And we have to say very, uh, you know, very openly that this is, you know, that, that, that there's not a civil war in Syria. There never has been a civil war in Syria. This, um, from the start, has been a foreign-backed intervention. And the United States started this um, with the so-called uh, support for so-called moderate rebels. That was the term that was used both by the United States and, and of course, David Cameron in, in Britain were talking about um, the, the moderate rebels. Now, the, the, the US strategy uh, the, initially was the 
Um, uh, if you, you can go back, and it started under um, Barack Obama, the um, uh, and under his presidency with Operation Timber Sycamore, and it's a, I think it's the costliest CIA covert CIA um, program to date, and uh, costing um, more than one billion US dollars. And what we saw with that was um, arms, weapons, cash, and training being sent to a myriad of um, jihadist organizations. Seymour Hirsch wrote um, about this as well, what he called the rat lines. And uh, you know, I, I advise listeners to, to read the article because it gives a very, very detailed oversight into how, um, how this operation took place with um, arms entering the country via, um, via Libya, but also via Syria. And I've, I've um, sorry, via Turkey. And I myself have reported from the um, the border of um, of Turkey and, and Syria. Um, I escaped kidnapped by ISIS at this particular time. But there was um, at that time what was happening was ISIS fighters were being recruited in a, a border town called Achakane, and it sits on the you know on the border. You can you know, there's just a, a small fence that divides it from uh, Talabiad in in, in Syria. And the road I drove down to get into this city was called the Jihadi Highway. So it was a global recruitment centre for um, for the, the ISIS and, and, and other organisations. And they were using this particular town. They were crossing from the battlefields of, of, of Talabiyad and they were patching themselves up in the hospitals there from their war wounds. They were having R&R in the, uh, the hotels and the restaurants. And then they were going back out. Um, uh, crossing the border back into um, you know to 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 fight um, as they sought to impose a uh, a caliphate there. So and of course you know this you know people often talk about Turkey as though it's in you know it's independent in all this, but Turkey is has long been pretty much a um, a U.S. client state. It's you know particularly you know going back as far as as you know when Turkey was used as a bulwark against the Soviet Union, and now of course Turkey sits um, you know. Uh, uh, you know, geopolitically, it's uh, you know we're um, bordering Syria, Iran, Iraq, all all countries where the US wants regime change. All countries that also uh, just happen to have massive oil um, oil reserves. So, of course, the the, the rise of ISIS or um, you know saw resistance. Um, the the role of the Syrian Arab Army is often downplayed in this, but they made tremendous sacrifices in sweeping the jihadists out of vast swathes of, of of territory and retaking them under uh, you know into into government control including Aleppo and uh, we had a covered an article back when I was in at the morning star um calling uh, mentioning the calling describing the retaking of control of, of Aleppo as a liberation and we got lambasted by the likes of Owen Jones. We it was brought up by George Osborne in the House of Commons, the former Chancellor. Um, but you know, I maintain that it's absolutely right to describe the freeing a city that has been held under the yoke of a death cult, a death cult that had been chopping off people's heads, um, that had been torturing and raping and pillaging those people, holding them hostage for years. And when the Syrian Arab army freed them. They were welcomed and they were treated as heroes. Now, I would describe that as a liberation, as would anybody, um, as would anybody else, and quite rightly so. 
But of course, the US never misses out on an opportunity to expand its influence. So on the one hand, whilst it was funding and is still funding now, is still supporting um, the <laughs> the jihadist groups in, in, in Syria, um, it saw an opportunity when the um, the Kurdish forces in um, in northern Syria, particularly in the northeast of Syria, were waging a fight against um, against ISIS as they swept across the country. They saw an opportunity to embed themselves with those um, those Kurdish forces that were fighting. There, and once they arrived as part of what they called the international coalition um, against ISIS, which you know is laughable to um, you know to uh, consider the US a, 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 you know, as the people that are fighting against the very forces that they support and that they've brought into the country. Um, but they um, entered the country. They entered a coalition with the Kurdish forces. They formed the what's called the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a name. Um, that was thought up by the United States to give it a more broadly, a more broad appeal. Um, um, Vanessa Beely, the, the the journalist, describes them as the Kurdish Contras. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's her term. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, a, a great term. Now, a lot of people obviously had sympathy and and do have sympathy with the Kurdish population. Um, that you know they they were defending their land against um, you know against uh, you know head choppers, so of course you know people support them in that that they're being attacked by Turkey with uh, you know launching drone strikes and uh, at the moment they keep delaying it but they're threatening another um, uh, another another invasion. Um, but what people have less sympathy with is allying with the world's biggest imperialist force, the you know the the um the united states which brutally crushes movements um liberation movements or or national movements across the world with you know the use of death squads and you know th- we've seen horrific abuses across you know latin america with operation condor for example you know tens of thousands of people disappeared and governments overthrown um you know going you know salvador Allende obviously would be the most obvious one the the strangling of the cuban or the attempted strangling of the cuban uh, the Cuban Revolution. So to ally with um, the United States, and not only to ally them, but to bring them in and allow them to set up military bases, and to plunder the resources of the uh, country is, is something that people have a lot, lot less sympathy with. And um, you know, I always say, and, and I've reported from you know from the region, as you as you know, but um, yeah, there's they, they, this is the region that they call in, in the Kurds call Rojava, which means west in um, in, in in the Kurdish language, um, in Comanche Kurdish, and um, you know the, the, they call it the Rojava Revolution. Now, I mean, this is probably another topic for a whole other podcast, I, I guess. But um, you know, wh- whether it's a revolution or not a revolution, I would argue that it that if it, it isn't a revolution, I'm a communist, and I, you know, I, I apply the Marxist analysis to to to, to this situation, and, and it doesn't, you know, it's it's. It's not a revolution. Let's you know, um, but uh, in any case, a revolution cannot come by the barrel of the U.S. imperialist gun. That's um, you know, that's that's incredibly clear. And for peace in the Middle East, whatever that means, you know, I think sometimes peace is talked about in an abstract, uh, very abstract way. But peace can never come to Syria as long as the U.S. continues to occupy its land. And as long as Turkey continues to occupy its land and all of these forces have to leave. Now, people often say, well, Russia um, has a presence in Syria. And yes, it does. 
But the big difference is that Russia is there at the invitation of the government of President Bashar al-Assad. And uh, Russia has been there to offer tactical and military support to the Syrian Arab army in the fight against um, ISIS and in the fight, fight against um, al-Nusra, al-Qaeda and all the jihadist groups that are there. So it's it's incredibly different. Um, you know, they're not an occupying force. They're there to support the, um, you know, to support the government and to support Syrian sovereignty. The United States is there specifically to undermine Syrian sovereignty. And we can see this, how this is manifested in, um, and I think it's become, I mean, it's been going on for a very, very long time, but it's become more, um, uh, uh, I think it's become highlighted more in the, in the news recently is the stealing of oil resources. Yes. Um, um I wrote a story just before I left the Morning Star. So earlier this, oh, sorry, last month, just to, um, the middle of last month, so in August, that the United States is stealing more than 80% of cereal, Syria's oil resources every day. Now, this came from the, 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 the government ministry of oil and mineral resources. And they said that um, oil production for the first half of this year was, was 14.5 million barrels. So that's an average of eight, just over 80,000 a day and the us is stealing 66000 of those barrels a day which is 83% or just over 83% of the total um oil output now there's a lot of discussion about whether this is um you know whether uh, this is actually happening or not and then some are saying that well it's justified because um the you know in that part of the region they need the revenue from the oil to help rebuild infrastructure and this kind of thing now um, you know, th th this is you know this is astronomical, and and you know everywhere we see everywhere we see U.S. intervention, there's always some something, some resource that they're trying to um, you know c gain control of, and uh, in this case, it's not just oil; it's wheat. Now, I've seen with my own eyes the trucks. So I know for a fact that it's happening. So this isn't, I, I, I didn't see them in Syria, I have to say. I saw them in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, and I've seen the, the trucks are crossing from Syria into that part of the, um, you know, of, of Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, huge convoys. And they're leaving then via uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and, you know, into Turkey where the, the oil is being sold. Um, and, of course, now this is becoming more of an issue with, what's happening with the conflict in Ukraine and the global energy price. So we're seeing also the the, the US uh, waging war in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, actually, as well, um, again, for control of um, oil pipelines and resources there, which we can talk about. Uh, but they're also, also stealing wheat. So tons of grain. Um, I haven't got the exact figures, but you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of tons of grain. Um, are being taken away by the occupying forces. And I've spoken to journalists on the ground um and these are journalists that are close to the sdf so these aren't you know uh, uh, um, these aren't people that are politically necessarily hostile to the united states i spoke to one who told me that um yes this is definitely happening it's happening on a mass scale it's been happening for a very long time but he said journalists are afraid too afraid and he said they're not brave enough to speak out about it and he wasn't just talking about Syrian journalists or Kurdish journalists. He was talking about Western journalists that come and what they could tend to do when they come to Syria um, or 
the north, northeastern Syria is they come and they embed with the Syrian democratic forces and they paint this kind of rosy, rose-tinted view of the what they call the Rojava revolution and everything's wonderful there and um, you know the Kurds are, are leading uh, leading way in in um, you know, a, a new world and a, you know this you know a lot of them a lot of them are anarchists and they say that you know this is a um, you know the, the, this justifies their you know this is their 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 system in action and shows how it can work. Um, of course, it's nonsense. You know this is a, an absolute fairy tale because the Kurdish enclave only exists because of the presence of the United States and their forces there. If they were to go, um, you know, things would collapse um, very quickly. And they talk about, one of the things that I, that I often speak about is that you know, they constantly talk about a women's led revolution. Um, and, you know, and again, this is, I mean, this is something of a fantasy too, but one of the things that they do is they parade the, the, um, the former chair of the U.S. Um, the, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and she, she's called Nadine Meinzer, and she was an, appointed by Trump, and she says, you know, she talks about, um, oh, isn't it great that in this part of the world, in this part of Syria, they protect um, religious freedom, and you know, she, she says that across, you know, and she implies that across the rest of Syria, this doesn't happen. Which is again absolute nonsense. Um, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, um, and 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 his government um, are, I would say, you know, perhaps in the region, uh, the leading country in protecting the um, religious rights of of, of minorities. And, and you know, we saw this with the return of um, of Christmas after the jihadists um, you know, had left and this kind of thing. And um, but Nadine Meinzer, for for an organisation that. Um, that brands itself a women's-led revolution to parade this woman, who is the also the president of Patriot Voices, Rick Santorum, you know, who's a bizarre right-wing Republican senator, um, and um, she has led the campaign against the right for women in the United States to have an abortion, and this is a fundamental attack on women. And at the same time that this was happening and women were fighting for their rights. And we saw what happened with Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court decision, um, which set back women's rights for, you know, for decades. It was what, 1973, I think it was, that that, um, you know, that that um, judgment was made. And it's now been rolled back. Um, but of course, they were parading her because she said some nice things about the Kurdish movement. And, um, you know, I think... And I'm sure that listeners will agree that the fight for women's liberation is a global, a global fight. It's a global struggle, and that means that you unite with um, progressive forces, not regressive forces like Nadine Meinzer. Anyway, we, we, yeah, that's maybe a, a side issue. But to come back to the issue of what's happening there with the theft of plunder of oil, the plunder of of wheat, and the reason that this is um, again such an issue and i spoke about journalists being you know I, I think that this journalist was probably a little bit unkind on himself because he was telling me this stuff and i know that that he did it at great risk because um there's a syrian journalist called mohammed al sagir and he's been held by the sdf since 20 uh, 2019 and he was held because he reported on the theft of wheat and oil by the us occupying forces and um, again, I wrote about I wrote about him, and he was he's been held in prison for um, yeah for the last um, 
three or four years now. He's had a number of strokes and he recently started a hunger strike. He's been tortured in custody. Now, as a journalist, I have contacts with the SDF and they regularly, you know, they were, you know the SDF um, spokesman will, will reply to my questions. When I asked him on this, he remained absolutely silent and didn't respond to my questions on what's he been charged with, why are you holding him, is he going to be released? So for any of those, any listeners to this that are members of, of any trade union, um, journalist organisations, I mean, they have raised the, they have raised um, concerns and raised the alarm, but um, any kind of support on the solidarity from Mohammed uh, Al uh, Sagir is, um, is I know, is very much appreciated because you know, his family and uh, his colleagues who I've spoken to have um, have told told me so as well. But um, just on the again on the issue of of oil, we can look at the um, again what's happening in Syria whilst wheat is being smuggled out of the country, the the people of Syria are suffering um, shortages of of wheat because this is the biggest wheat producing area of the country and that wheat of course should be used for the whole for the whole of the Syrian people who are suffering under US sanctions um, the Cesarac sanctions which are having a an impact not only on the people of Syria who are you know suffering immensely and you know Assad has described it as a you know an economic warfare designed designed to starve the people of Syria into submission they're failing to do that by the way um, but I, I also spent um, you know a year in um, in Lebanon, which obviously is neighbouring neighbouring Syria, and the impact is being felt there, where the currency has been you know lost eighty five percent of its value, and of course um, you know it's having a, a desperate impact uh, there uh, you know, there as well. So, um, but while the Syria sanction uh, the Syria sanctions are in uh, you know uh, remain in place. Um, earlier this year, I forget the I forget which month um, now, some April April or May time. The, um, the this is a name that will be familiar to many listeners, but from the U.S. State um, State Department, Victoria Newland um, of Biolabs in Ukraine fame. Yes, that's the one, and fuck the EU. Um, hmm. Yeah, the 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 very one, Victoria Newland. Um, gave a partial waiver to the sanctions, not just to the Kurdish-dominated um, um, region, and the, the they called it the autonomous area of, of northeast Syria. So there's a partial sanctions waiver for that area, but also a partial sanctions uh, waiver for the um, uh, the jihadist-held and the jihadist-run and Turkish-occupied um, area around Idlib. So... Um, this, you know, the, the, these areas. So, any in essence, any area not held by the Syrian government was given a partial waiver. Now, back in 2020, um, the SDF um, struck a deal with um, what was then the Trump administration, and they allowed the uh, the U.S. Delta Crescent Energy Company to come and take over. Um, the oil, uh, you know, an oil field there, and you know they had a waiver to allow them to do business. Now that waiver was axed by um, by Joe Biden when you know when 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 he came to power. But there's been talks about renewing that, and the US has been very clear that its only interest um, in the region is oil, as it you know as it is um, um, as it is always. So 
you know, the U.S. has um, you know, uh, you know long-term stability in uh, in Syria, and you know, it occasionally tries to justify its continued presence there. For example, it will. Um, yeah, occasionally, and 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 the, the, these kind of hits always come at convenient times for the United States. So, for example, um, earlier this year, when Biden was uh, flagging in the polls in 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 February, um, they announced um, that they had taken out ISIS um, and, uh, leader Al Qaraishi, and yeah, they celebrated this. This is great. The US, um, yeah, we will hunt down terrorists wherever they wherever they are. And yeah, this came, you know, this um under um you know, we, we, we saw also under Trump, um al Baghdadi was taken out. And they they were taken out in very similar or very close to each other actually, um, close to the border with um you know with with, with Turkey. But I, I wrote an article about this back in, in February and um you know, I, essentially, the 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 what I was arguing was, well, did the um, did the United States take out one of its own assets when it when it um, when it killed um, Croatia? And I, I won't go into all of the detail about it, um, uh, the detail about it now. But this was a coordinated operation, and it they were, um, I think, you know, um, you know, tipped off about Croatia where where Croatia was. Now, both Croatia and our uh, Baghdadi were um, both held in the notorious Kambuka in Iraq, um, which was a CIA-run um, um, jail. And it, you know, these were people that were picked up. They were um, senior figures within ISIS. And they were held, I think Baghdadi was held for eight years. Karaishi, they're not sure. There's, there's, they're not sure. Some say it was months, some say a couple of years. But they were certainly both held by... Um, uh, by the uh, and interrogated by the CIA, and you, know, you can read their the transcript of the, of their interrogations. There's pages and pages and pages of it. Um, and uh, Karachi in particular gave away the pretty much the entire command structure of ISIS in um, in, in Mosul. And um, yeah, and Karachi went on to um, you know, lead this this attack, which was apparently six months in the planning, and you probably. Remember this back in in February when there was an attack on the uh, one of the the, the prisons in in Al Hasaka province and um, where the, there was a launch some something like two hundred ISIS fighters organised in small cells launched an attack on the prison there to you know they, and they tried to there was about three thousand jihadists in there and they wanted to to free them now that attack went on for you know quite a number of days and. The United States, of course, said, "Yeah, it was us. We we repelled the uh, we repelled the ISIS attack, and really, they they used it actually to destroy um, uh, infrastructure again on on the ground. They attacked Syrian forces um, and Syrian civilians. Um, I'm not sure how many people they killed, but they, they there was a a number of Syrian civilians that were wiped out um, during that attack, and then then not long after that, eventually they killed." Uh, Karashi, who said, who they said was the mastermind behind that attack, and of course they sat back and basked in the glory. But do we think it's uh, realistic that the uh, the two former leaders of ISIS were both held in a CIA prison in Iraq uh, for years? They were interrogated and they were both released, mm. <laughs> and then the intelligence services 
didn't monitor them and they just so happened to make their way to the top of of um you know of isis and become the leader of isis and nobody knew you know the cia and u.s intelligence didn't know where they were in Quraysh's example do you really think that it's credible to suggest that he could have planned the attack on hasika um the the prison in hasika for six months and the 200 isis um, fighters organized in cells could have just operated freely in an area that is teaming with US intelligence services, US um, soldiers, US military. Um, and they did that without being noticed by anybody. I mean, people can draw their own conclusions from that, but I think it's very unlikely. Well, that does open up an interesting line of inquiry, Steve, which is that ISIS was the bogeyman uh, on the, uh, in, in the Western press for much of the last decade um, before, of course, um, it was replaced by um by by russia and putin but i remember all the way through like 2014 15 16 like on the, all of the tabloids were screaming about like uh, the isis was going to turn up and invade your hometown very soon the caliphate was coming the black flags were on the march but of course they were in syria and iraq they're not here rather yeah. obviously but it does raise the question from what you've just said steve which is John Kerry said in um, Senate testimony a while ago, who was Secretary of State under Obama, um, that they were happy to see ISIS advance because it put pressure on Assad. So yeah. with everything, you bear in mind what you've just said about many of these men in the high leadership of ISIS being in prison in Iraq, being interrogated and broken by the CIA and giving up a lot of information, like, and then turning up as leaders of these groups. What is the relationship between the united states government and isis because it's clear just even just from what kerry said that it is not what it was portrayed as in the uh, in the corporate press is it no, absolutely not and i think you know we can go back again as i mentioned the you know the operation timber timber sycamore program which was funding the um you know the the what they call the moderate rebels in syria these rat lines of weapons and um, you know, which went to the uh, organisations, in, including ISIS. But yeah, we can go back even um, you know, in, in August 2012, for example, their US intelligence report then was saying that the US was prepared to accept, and this is what they said, I, uh, I have a copy of the document, um, a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria to act as a Sunni buffer, buffer sorry, to, to weaken uh, Syria, but also to block the influence of um, you know, of Shia Iran. So I think, you know, we. I mean, there's plenty of um, evidence uh, that you know to suggest that the, the the links between the United States and, and, and ISIS. And of course, this is you know we shouldn't really be surprised, um, you know, to to you know to to hear this either because this is the tried and tested method of. We have to say the British as well. Um, you know, the, 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 this is the kind of thing that they exported across the world. So the United States um, learned from the former uh, leading imperialist power um, in how you know how they mobilised <coughs> local um, local organisations and and the and the establishment of death squads. But we saw it again in you know across Latin America. And you know, I, I mentioned earlier Operation Condor, which was. You know, saw the establishment of these kind of organisations that were hunting down um, dissidents, um, leftists, trade unionists, and all sorts. You know, anybody that was um, that, that that dared to 
um, run counter to U.S. imperialist interests were, you know, disappeared and massacred, you know, buried in mass graves. And it, um, actually, I wrote about this a, a while ago as well, that there were reports um, from West German, obviously, then intelligence, that there was um, consideration of Britain, um, you know, that operating a similar kind of operation across, um, uh, you know, across across Europe. So, of course, we're going to see this again in the, in the Middle East. And we've seen them, you know, we've seen over the years this cultivation of other various radical groups. And, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood was, um, you know, was, was used in a similar way. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's any, uh, any doubt that the US is um, supportive of ISIS, of al-Qaeda, of jihadist um, groups. I don't think they have any, um, you know, particular qualms about um um, uh, about using those kind of groups. And we could talk uh, very briefly about the White Helmets. And, of course, journalists like Vanessa Beely have, have um, written extensively about the the, um, the White Helmets and others um, as well. Eva Bartlett has too. And, um, you know, the, 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 the links between, the, you know, this organisation, which was heavily funded by the United States government and the, and the British government, and... Um, essentially operated and was run by um, you know, jihadist organisations, and they're under the guise of being a humanitarian uh, NGO, and had Hollywood films made after them, and were you know, had awards bestowed upon them, and you know for their heroic um, heroic acts. But of course, these you know, these were jihadists that were aimed at overthrowing the government, that were responsible for um, you know fabricating chemical attacks, like in in um, in Duma, and we're seeing actually a similar pattern being used um, in Ukraine. And I think you know we sh- you know we can't um, you know what wh- wh- whatever we're seeing and whatever we saw happen um, and play out in Syria is now being played out in in Ukraine. And you know the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi organization, one of them. I mean there are many of them, but these are the you know the new so the new moderate rebels. And again, we've seen them armed to the teeth by. Um, and continuing to be armed to the teeth by the um, Western powers, who again have sought to downplay, um, you know, downplay their, um, you know, their ideological beliefs, and you know they're they're just misunderstood nationalists now, and you know nothing to see, uh, nothing to see here. But we're also seeing a lot of the same people that were in um, in uh, northeastern Syria that were fighting with the S. Or the, or the the Kurdish-led uh, movement, the People's Protection Unions, the, the YPG. And I have an article coming out on this very, very soon. It's It will be quite extensive. It's taken quite a lot of research. But a lot of the people, former British soldiers mainly, um, that fought in, um, in Syria alongside the United States, have simply transferred from that battlefield and are now in, um, in Ukraine. And they're operating under... Um, you know, a lot of them are uh, pretending or posing their pseudo humanitarian NGOs. Mm. Um, for example, the Dark Angels, which is run by, um, was established by Daniel Burke, a former a former U.S. soldier who was in the same um, the same uh, units that was the one that, if you remember, if you recall, they they hit the news headlines after they were caught um, firing practice rounds at pictures of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, oh yes. And, if you remember, yeah, if you remember, if you remember them, now, they pose as a humanitarian organisation, but I exposed them for um, actually going as a humanitarian organisation. They were armed with javelin missiles, firing at Russian tanks, 
And um, yeah, there, there's another organization called the um, Nightingale. What are they called? The Nightingale, not the Nightingale Battalion. That was, but I mean, that's the name of the organization that massacred um, Jews in in Lviv in in 1941. But um, the Nightingale unit is run by uh, Mesa Gifford, who is his real name is Harry Rowe. He's a former city banker, Tory councillor, with links to. Uh, the intelligence services with um, links to the the British state, very clear links to the British state, and he um, again is operating in, inside the country. And there's there's many of these people, and a lot of them have been recruited in via um, uh, via either the the Georgian International um, League or the um, or Azov. So there's this you know there's this kind of revolving door where people are going you know going from one battlefield to the other and. Um, yeah, we, we, we and, it, and it opens, I think, a lot more, um, you know, a lot more questions about the nature of um, what's happening in Ukraine. As you know, I was in Ukraine myself. Um, I witnessed with my own eyes. Um, I was on the same coach as people crossing in from Poland into into Ukraine, and you know, these were people in military fatigues that were going in with arms um, and other weapons, and they were using civilian transport networks to. Uh, to enter the country now of course they had the red carpet rolled out for them i went in armed with a pen and a camera and i was told i was a spy and that i would be tortured and executed and i made a very fortunate and and, and lucky um and lucky escape but now you know the the i mean this is again what's happening in ukraine as we know is a a proxy war um, led by the United States and um, NATO, but we can expect to see this play out in other arenas across across the world. Um, obviously, Taiwan is in is now in the you know things are escalating there as we've seen with the Pelosi visit and you know more U.S. warships sent to the region and uh, and this kind of thing. So we can we can trace all of this back. I think to as as we started at the beginning of this interview. With the death of, um, we were speaking about the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, um, and you know this, you know, is very much his legacy, and the legacy of the collapse of, um, or, or, of the Soviet Union. But um, I mean, I think it also it says something else, and I think it, um, what it does highlight is the the um, the weakness of U.S. imperialism, and uh, you know, it's in you know, this is. Um, you know, the, the, I think the situation it finds itself in the, the decline of the dollar as as the global currency. We're seeing more and more countries now moving away from, um, uh, you know, from this. And of course, you know, once they lose that, they lose their ability, or the US uh, US imperialism uses its ability to uh, control, dominate, and control world financial markets, which is why at the moment it's lashing out um, left, right, and centre almost haphazardly. Um, it might, you know, it might appear. But um, I was talking to somebody um, just yesterday, and we were asking, well, when was the last time the US actually won a war, and has it ever won a war? Um, the war of on. independence, um, Spanish-American war. <laughs> yeah, maybe, and and you know, yeah, exactly. But we're talking, you know, how long ago was that? A uh, hundred and twenty-four years ago, eighteen ninety-eight. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, uh, but since then, I mean, they've suffered defeat after defeat. Um, whether it's in Afghanistan, which again is you know the legacy of what's um, 
you know, the botched um, withdrawal and, and the 20 year occupation of, of that country is, is being felt, um, t- um, you know, still being felt today in Iraq, where I lived for a long time is, you know, the, you know, the, the US, what the US did to that country, um, you know, th- which is why when they talk about, oh, Russia must pay reparations to Ukraine after, you know, well, okay, so when's the US going to pay reparations to Afghanistan, to Nicaragua, to Vietnam, to, you know, to Iraq, to all of the countries that they've, um, you know, that, that they've destroyed. So mm. I think, you know, we're seeing the decline of the US as a um, as an imperialist power, but also it's it's what makes it incredibly dangerous as well. Well, yes, because as you as you intimated there, Steve, uh, when you're talking about the dollar, I mean, they're because they've um, hollowed out their industrial base now, and they're reliant more than ever on um, the mo- movement of well, money capital essentially around, and yeah. their ability to raise endless amounts of debt by essentially the dollar being the world's reserve currency. And what if that goes, then uh, the whole system starts to fall to pieces because if they can't have their debts endlessly financed by the dollar being the thing that everybody puts their money in, then that 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 part of the American empire, that huge central core of the American empire with it as as it having the world's reserve currency, that's gone. And then that creates not just a series of um, international problems but that will create real domestic problems for them won't it <clears throat> well it will and i think it already is actually i mean you can see i was just watching a speech this morning where um biden who um i mean i'm, I'm thinking perhaps the worst president in u.s history but um he was branding um donald trump supporters um as um or oh, they've been branded very recently as um, domestic terrorists, and um, I mean, it's the, the language that is being used is quite astonishing, really. I think there was a poll recently that that shows something uh, like just over forty percent of Americans believe that there's going to be another civil war in the country. I mean, that's yeah, that that's you know, when you've got forty percent of Americans saying that, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty shocking. And I mean, I don't think it's going to come to that personally, but. What it you know what it shows is that the you know that there's a really divided society in 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 the United States and um, it's not surprising that we're seeing this with you know the the assault on people's standard of living in America now where there's been you know been shortages of of, of baby milk and you know inflation is rocketing through the roof unemployment is you know is is, is skyrocket, skyrocketing and the and the us not just the us economy but the you know the western um countries and the european economies are being trashed um to support what's happening the intervention in in ukraine and we're seeing you know in in britain at the moment you have both um liz truss and, and rishi sunak vying for the leadership of the Tory party and whoever wins that will become the next prime minister. And there doesn't seem to be any change in direction of policy, um, either in terms of Ukraine or the, or the economy. And, you know, people are now, I I saw something on LBC, the radio station now where one of the callers just, you know, a complete, just an ordinary, ordinary bloke, you know, phones in and he said he couldn't care less about Ukraine. He couldn't care less about what's going going on there. He said, "Look," and he nailed it. He said, "You know that." He said that they that, that Ukraine can't win. 
the only way they can win is if the United States, Britain, Germany, France enter that war explicitly, put troops on the ground and start World War Three. This is the only way they can win. So he said that the best thing that they can do is to stop and to stop flooding it with arms and to stop you know, what they're talking about now, 3% of military, um, 3% of GDP on, on military spending whilst builds are rocketing the way they are. Three and a half thousand, five thousand mm. they're going to go up to in in January. I mean, of course, the political elite couldn't care less about the economy being trashed. And I think part of it is, you know, the, the German economy, which has, you know, for a long time been the, the engine of the European Union and the European economy, um, you know, more, more generally. Um, I think there's uh, also an attempt to trash the German economy because, uh, particularly under Angela Merkel, the German German um, uh, government had a very good relationship with Russia and with um, and with Putin. And of course, they you know as the dominant force in in Europe, the Americans will be thinking, well, we we don't want that. We want to be we want hegemonic control over um, you know the 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 European Union and the European countries. We want to keep that you know Euro Atlanticism. Um, project. So we would happily trash their economy if it means that we can continue to exert control. And, you know, I, but I think now, certainly in, in Britain and across Europe, we're starting to see resistance. We've seen in Germany, um, sorry, in Greece and Italy, um, national general strikes. But they, the thing that they've done, and I think this is, you know, is politicise those strikes. So they're not just strikes over um, pensions and pay and wages and the cost of living crisis they're also linking it to military spending and the increased uh spending you know the, the, both italy and greece have been major uh, particularly greece has been a major, you know, major nato staging posts and major staging posts for the flood of arms into ukraine and you know they've organized under the slogan um, lower your guns raise our wages now that is the exact kind of political demand that we should be posing in britain you know, we've we've seen the strikes of rail workers, communication workers. I believe health workers are balloting for strike action at the moment. <coughs> more and more people are, you know, becoming becoming desperate as you know as their, um, you know, their their wages are sorry, their bills are, are rising, but their wages are either staying the same or 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 being, um, or being cut. Now, you know, there needs to be some kind of political leadership that says, that makes the link between what's happening and um, militarisation. So, you know, very simple demands, um, you know, should be things like no um, no arms to Ukraine, end the sanctions on Russia, scrap NATO. Now, those are three very simple slogans, very simple demands. But I think that they are also demands that fit, you know, the, the fit the mood and would get an ear. Um, but of course, we're not seeing anything like that in Britain. You have the opposition, the main opposition party, which isn't really an opposition party under Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour Party, refusing to even call for the nationalisation of the utility companies. I mean, you know, when, when things are you know, in, in, you know, as dire as that, and you know, calling saying to Labour MPs, if you criticise NATO. Then you'll be you'll have the whip withdrawn. You'll be suspended. We're not going to countenance any criticism of you know a an aggressive war machine. And they all agreed to it as well, Steve. And they all, like, they all back down. And they all back down because at the end of the day, they put their party first. And this is you know this is extreme cowardice. 
Um, and it should, for me, um, and I know it's the same for you, which is why we should have no truck with the Labour Party whatsoever. They, they're a bulwark. They're a, a, against, um, you know, against um, the working class. Well, they're the, yes. you know, they're the enemy of working class people. And, of course, you know, there's that historical, um, you know, link that where people naturally kind of see, well, Labour's my party because, um, you know, they have traditionally been, you know, traditionally working class people have voted for the Labour Party, although that's changed, I think, over recent years. And, you know, that vacuum has been, been filled by populist parties or even right wing um, or extreme right parties and organisations which have, you know, occupied the ground which was once, um, you know, the, held by the, by, by the Labour Party. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, you know this is, they're, they're an anti-working class party, it has to be said. I mean, what kind of party that was founded to be the political expression of the trade unions orders, not just, you know, not just advises, but orders its um, MPs not to intend picket lines? I mean, it's just astonishing, really. And at a time when, you know, when people are desperate and they're looking for some kind of support, some kind of, you know, what can we do to 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 get out of this crisis? And they look to the leader or leaders or the leader, you know, the leaders of the opposition uh, political party, and they see absolutely nothing. But also, it has to be said, not just the leaders. Uh, it has to be said um, that you know, there's a timidity from, um, you know, from uh, again across the movement. Where people are, you know, they don't want to rock the boat, and they're they're using our movement or the movement to coral everything into a vote Labour. That's mm. it. You know, it all comes down to the ballot box, you know. So in however many years' time, when there's a general election, oh yeah, if you vote Labour, things will change, and then they won't change, and then it just repeats itself over and over and over again. But people. We don't, you know, we don't have that luxury. I don't think anymore. And I think it's time, um, you know, to to step up to the plate. And I think that our movement should be pushing much more forcefully and pushing much stronger demands like the ones that I outlined. Yes, and if we don't, then um, this sort of a de- uninterrupted downward spiral of madness is only going to continue. I mean, you're talking about um, money and um, you know what the British government spends on this Ukraine war. I mean, you'll be aware, Steve, that yesterday there was the attempt by the Ukrainian government, the rather insane attempt, to seize the um, Zaporozhye nuclear power plant before the International Atomic Energy Agency inspection team could arrive. And this was a plan that, we are told, was cooked up by Boris Johnson and MI6. And the the men that died yesterday, pointlessly, uh, those Ukrainian men that were in the commando squad that, that landed there, were all trained in Britain and armed by the British, and at considerable expense. Um, they might have been the very men that Boris was visiting and playing soldiers with at that camp uh, just yeah. after he resigned as prime minister. The Russians tracked them all the way through Poland, right the way up to the point where they launched their assault, then, of course, wiped them all out and captured a few of the survivors. And now, like, how much did the British government spend on that absolute disaster? Like millions upon millions, no doubt. And there'll be others that they're planning as well in this like Ukraine war, which is just given a chance to like for every British cabinet minister or Tory MP or Labour MP who wants to play, uh, you know, be, do a Churchill impression. They can do it and they don't think there's any cost to it because there's no direct British military deployment that we know of. Um, but they like to sort of posture around and pretend they're fighting some sort of uh, fighting some sort of war, whereas in actual fact, 
isn't it right, Steve, that they they really are prepared to sacrifice the entire Ukrainian population for this, aren't they? Well, absolutely. I think you know they're fighting to you know to to the last Ukrainian for their their own you know their own gains. I mean, let's be clear. From you know, we we should say that Ukraine cannot win. Right, that's very clear. It's been very clear to you know from from the outset actually. And I remember saying this at a, a public meeting back in April and being very heavily criticised for saying that you know Russia is hitting all of its um. Uh, you know, all of its goals, um, you know, all of you know, all of its targets are being are being uh, reached in terms of the, um, you know, of the conflict, and that Ukraine cannot win it. At that time, of course, we were being regaled in the British press of plucky Ukraine driving Russia out of Kiev, even though Russia never, um, you know, was never intended on taking control of Kiev. It went in there to take out military installations, telecoms, this kind of thing. It did that. It left. Um, and, um, yeah, we were t- being told these ridiculous stories about a babushka who took out a drone uh, with a jar of cucumbers and this kind of <laughs> nonsense, you know. And people were lapping this, um, you know, they were lapping this up. But, of course, they have to, at that time, they had to sell it to the British public and they had to sell it to the British political class as well to say, look, we need to support this. We need to keep pumping more arms and uh, more money in because you know this is uh, you know for this is how that they're going to you know they're, they're going to win they are making gains now it's very obvious that they were making absolutely no gains anywhere and the uh, the counter offensive i think in um in Kherson um i don't know how that's being um uh, portrayed in the, in the in the western media but oh the uh, daily telegraph proclaimed it to be the turning point yeah, well, maybe it's been a turning point. It, 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 the only turning point it could be is to realise how futile it is to to carry on, um, you know, as they are. I mean, it was a huge, huge flop. Um, Ukraine lost hundreds, more than five hundred, I think, soldiers were, were killed. They lost planes. They lost. T- Tanks. It was a humiliating, uh, humiliating defeat. And even some uh, kind of some of the Slavic Ukrainians, um, uh, you know, even some of those have. Um, acknowledge this that, that that things have gone very very badly, and you can tell now because there's a very subdued response, and um, I, I think certainly on social media, from what I've seen, there's not this kind of celebratory stuff. Paul Mason was was getting jumping up and down with excitement when this counteroffensive was going to be launched, thinking that this was going to be the start of the um, you know of, of, of victory and whatever. But you know it, it is it's ended in a humiliating defeat. Now. Every one of those deaths is a tragedy, and I think we should. You know, we're very clear about that, and I think you know the same for Russia. They see the the Ukrainians as their brothers. They don't want to be in this um, situation in, the, in in conflict with them, and they very clearly blame this on Zelensky. Um, you know, they're saying that he has dragged his country into um, you know, an unnecessary conflict when there could have been a peaceful resolution to this. Five. Minsk one and Minsk two from the from the very start and had Russia's security concerns been been addressed. But as you said, the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is now, um, I guess, is the focus uh, really of of, of 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 what's happening. The International Atomic Energy Agency have have arrived. They um, started their um, their inspection and their monitoring. A group of them left. I think there's some that have, that have stayed there, and they. 
Um, Stefan Dujaric, the the, um, the the spokesman for Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, responding to a a question, said that you know the Russian forces um, did what they needed to do to defend the inspectors, as you explained, that the this. Yeah, the amphibious attempt was uh, you know, to take control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, which has been shelled by uh, Ukrainian forces for weeks now, the intensification of that. And, you know, it's very serious and there's been, um, uh, you know, Russia has been very clear that this could be um, you know, an unimaginable disaster that could... Um, you know, impact on, I think, you know, they said that the fallout from that could, you know, affect nine uh, countries. It could spread to nine nearby countries, including, you know, Bulgaria and Turkey and, uh, you know, and other, other neighbouring, uh, other neighbouring countries. And, um, yeah, but the, the, the shelling has continued. Now in the West, they've tried to blame Russia for shelling its own, um, its own, its own troops and its own positions and its own plant, which is just bizarre. And, you know, it's almost laughable, really, that, that that they think that they can report this and, and get away with it. So this um, counteroffensive was apparently um, carried out with the the aim of seizing control of the plant, but also holding the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, inspectors as hostages and human shields. And there's some reports that are suggesting that the Ukrainian forces were going to pretend to be Russians. Um, yeah, I heard that as well. I mean, that that sounds like to me another Boris plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, it's you know, this is not beyond the realms of possibility. It's you know, it's, it's entirely likely, and as you said, that Ukrainian troops have been thousands of them have been um, trained in um, you know in Britain, and of course, this is exactly the kind of operation that they would have been trained for, and. Um, again, it was another offensive that spe- spectacularly backfired at the cost of, of of many lives. And you know, you have to question now with these two particular incidents: how much longer can they um, continue continue with this? I mean, it's you know, the, the the British public are now, have now become you know what they call war weary. You know, it's not on the you know the what's happening in Ukraine is not on the front pages anymore. People are more concerned about putting food on their table, paying their bills and keeping warm in winter than they are about continuing to fund the, um, you know, the, the, the conflict in Ukraine. And this is where, again, we have to come back to, there should be opposition to this. And where is that being voiced? It doesn't seem to be being voiced through the Labour Party. I mean, it, doesn't even really seem to be being voiced through the anti-war movement. Who well, I think the anti-war movement in Britain is um, pretty much dead, Steve. To be blunt about it, I yeah. mean, I mean, we talked about Syria before. I mean, you, uh, we were we were mentioning like there should have been much more anti-war feeling around both the Libya and the Syria wars, but the government kind of got away with that to a degree. Though there was some opposition over bombing Syria. But then they really um, they they really went to town on like um, psyoping basically the anti-war left by bringing out a lot of like uh, Syrian exile groups to claim that the evil uh, dictator Assad needed to be destroyed and how dare you oppose this and like it worked on like people people like Owen Jones and Guardian columnists who immediately then said oh well we can't possibly be in favor of this 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 evil dictator he Assad must go the the thus bringing the Assad curse on all of them. Um, but the the anti-war movement in Britain, I think from its 
high point in the early 2000s, which was like my introduction to political activity, has really declined into nothing because the government has wielded this sort of these um, what I would call sort of neo-Trotskyite talking points against their um, their 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 chosen enemies in Libya and Syria and now Russia and now they're doing the same thing with the Chinese to sort of um, make sure that the middle class left is uh, successfully intimidated into refusing to really oppose any of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is you know this is. Um, you know, again, this is exactly the kind of moment where we need, I mean, I don't think we need, I mean, there's talk about a peace movement, but what we need is an anti-imperialist anti um, uh, movement. And I think that's the thing that's missing at the moment. And I look back at, you know, the you know the, the statements from Stop the War. It's not just from Stop the War. It's, it seems to be the kind of the progressive um, or the so-called progressive movement more broadly. And one of the demands... Uh, it, it, you know that that the concerns me greatly is Russian troops out now. Well, what would that mean? Well, we know we can we know what it would mean. We know what it would mean. We've got the example that you know from twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two, in which it would mean a massacre of people in the Donbass region. You know, fourteen thousand people were killed. Um, you know, uh, or have been killed since uh, since twenty fourteen, and you know this is official, according to official statistics. Something like eighty three percent of those people um, are Russian speakers. The large majority of them <coughs> civilians. So, so the, the 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 very I think it becomes you know, very simplistic to talk about um, Russian troops out, and and Russian troops out, of course, is the exact same line as the government, as NATO, as the United States. It's no different. And when you say, you know, Russian, I can't remember what the other slogans are, Russian troops out, no to NATO. Well, I think you need to, uh, you know, to scrap that um, part, you know, we can't say Russian troops out. No to NATO is 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 meaningless. It's nothing. I mean, saying no is, well, yeah, it's, it's hardly a, a bold political statement. We need to call for the dismantling and the scrapping of NATO. Um, but but the uh, I think the British left, shall we say, or the progressive movement has really lost its way over um, uh, you know, over what's happening now in Ukraine, and they can't analyse it from a. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm a Marxist and a communist, so you can analyse it from that kind of perspective. But you know, obviously, the broad majority of people are yet to be one to Marxist ideas. They're yet to be one to to, to communism. But I think. Even amongst those that would describe themselves as progressive, they seem to have forgotten what's been happening in Ukraine since 2014, which is, um, you know, a, a Nazi massacre essentially of, um, you know, of Russian speakers. And you know, the, there's all this talk about sovereignty and the, the you know, the, this is what uh, you know confuses me over the people that, um, you know, that, that were part of the YPG that came now fighting in. Um, you know, in, in, in Ukraine because, you know, their, their excuse was that they were in Syria to protect the right of the Kurdish people to autonomy and, um, you know, and for their, you know, for this, for their sovereignty. And which I have to say, um, President Assad has already given them that option because um, he spoke in April last year, just before the election, he spoke about decentralization. And if you're really very serious about that, then that's where those discussions um, should be had. But of course, they're not applying the same logic to 
um, Lugansk and, and Donetsk, where the vast majority of people now they've been recognised, their independence has been recognised by uh, by Russia. Um, something that had been called for by the Communist Party of the Russian Federation for many, well, since 2014, um, they were calling for recognition of, of their independence, along with that of um, of Crimea. But they seem to have jettisoned that, and they, you know, they they they, they talk about Ukraine Ukrainian sovereignty in 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 completely in abstract, and they're not able to recognise or understand the um, the history, which again goes back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think, you know... Uh, and also, Steve, just to interject yeah. for a moment, how much sovereignty post, really, 2014 did Ukraine really have? I mean, if you well, look very, at... Very little. I mean, yeah, <laughs> if you look I at mean, the documents that got leaked from USAID, for instance, like you, the US um, had the largest embassy in the... its largest diplomatic presence anywhere in the world, I think, in Kiev before yeah. the launch of the Russian operation in February... And they had advisors attached to all the main government ministries and yeah. the US sort of NGO and official org- and official government organizations were designing everything in Ukraine right down to the parking scheme in Kiev. So exactly. what sovereignty did they really have? Well, exactly. I mean, they had no sort of, you know, very, well, very, very little sovereignty. And I think this is, again, a, a, you know, people fail to understand. I mean, you know, the, the, the people that don't know because, you know, the, the Western press don't tell them and they don't report on on um, you know uh, accurately or you know on on um, on Ukraine and but when you talk to people they kind of understand it um, but yeah going back to 2014 the Maidan coup which again was you know backed by um, the US and uh, you know the uh, you know the the European Union and like you said the United States was flooding um, Ukraine with 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 officials with um, you know all sorts of you know NGOs and other orga- uh, other organisations. They were supporting you know neo Nazis, um, you know in the country, and of course they deposed um, a democratically elected um, you know um, president, democratically elected government, and replaced it with one in which they selected um, and they handpicked the people that were going to form that government. And they even you know down to I mean this is the other thing. Oh, the Nazis have no influence in in Ukraine. Well, really, because, you know, the, the, the far right actually held the post of deputy prime minister in the US post-Maidan um, administration. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. So um, there's never really been any um, Ukrainian sovereignty. And of course, by joining NATO and by, or by sucking them into that, um, the orbit of the European Union and NATO, they would lose any um you know any notion of uh, of ukrainian sovereignty completely disappears i mean just look at zelensky do i mean do, does anybody really believe that zelensky is running the country I mean, he's not of course he's not he if you remember there's um and you know the, the listeners can find this video clip of when he went to the front line and told the um you know the 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 neo nazi forces to disarm and they basically told him to get lost and ignored him and mm. yeah, he was saying, I'm here, I'm the president of the, of the country. Now, he was elected on whatever, 73% of the vote he won. And, but, but his mandate was to implement Minsk too, um, and for a peaceful resolution to the conflict in Donbass. And that's what people wanted. That's what the people of, across Ukraine wanted. Um, you know, not just in the East, but people in the West as well. They were fed up of, you know, eight years or, or whatever of, 
uh, you know, of conflict, and you know they saw him as the person to, um, you know, to to bring finally bring peace to the country. And of course, he wasn't allowed to do that by both by the far right in his own country, who's you know who threatened. Also, we 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 understand that they threatened to kill him if he you know, if he um, um, you know if he concluded peace in, in the Donbass and ceded any any kind of territory. And then, of course, we now have NATO, the Britain, and the US who are refusing to allow him to sign any kind of peace deal. I mean, this is why Boris Johnson keeps going over to Kiev is to put pressure on him. And of course, Johnson isn't independent of the United States; he's their lapdog, and he'll be going off there saying, "You better not do this, mate." Um, so any sense of you know sovereignty in Ukraine is just you know it's a fantasy. It's it's a myth. It's as much a myth as the fact that Ukraine you know is 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 winning or or, or can win this proxy war, which it can't. Well, um, that takes us to pass, pass well past the hour mark, Steve. This has been a really interesting discussion covering a hell of a lot of ground so uh, just to conclude with if people want to find out more about your work your writing where's the best place to find you so you can find me on twitter and my handle is at sweeney steve that's s-w-e-e-n-e-y steve and there's links there to my uh, my website which is currently um offline at the moment it's under construction but that will be up again very soon and uh, along with my rebel journalism um, youtube channel which again will be relaunching in the very near future but you can um, you can follow me on all of those platforms and channels um instagram Swinaldo, and facebook steve sweeney journalist so you can find me on um, on all of those and um yeah keep uh, follow me there Okay, I'll be sure to check all those out, good listeners. And uh, until we speak again, thank you for listening and thank you, Steve, for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. If you like what you've heard here and want to support the show, please be sure to go over to the Patreon page and subscribe there where there's new episodes posted five days a week and you can also listen to our series on uh, World War II entitled The Marxist History of World War II together with early release of the beginner's uh, course on Marxism-Leninism as well. I hope you've enjoyed the programme, and I'll be back with you again next week.